Dang, that was good. I'm, I'm on sabbatical during this year's Ecuador trip, but I, I want to leave that in order to go to Ecuador now. Man, it's crazy. Um, praise God for what he's doing. Thanks, Chris, for sharing. Um, Chris and I were talking this morning, and we're, uh, our missions applications are all gone up there. And so it uh, looks like people are uh, have taken them all. They'll be up on our website um, this week. So, uh, yeah, don't delay. Don't hesitate. Just do it. Um, talking with Pastor Daniel this week, and we're going to have to put a cap on, on, on our team. So if you feel like God is calling you, uh, is not calling you to stay, then uh, quickly do that. Pray about it. See why the Lord wouldn't want you to go. And, uh, yeah, fill out that application for DR, Ecuador, and the other things that uh, we have in the pipeline. So that will be awesome. I got an email um, this week, probably an email that has been circulated. It has been circulated many times before, and you've probably read it before. But I, as I read it, I thought it was funny. And uh, typically, uh, that may or may not mean that you think it's funny, but uh, it had a bunch of questions on there, a bunch of questions, the mysteries of life. And it asks things like, why is it that uh, when you buy lemon juice, it's made with artificial flavors, but when you buy lemon-scented detergent, it's made with real lemons? Why do things like that happen in this life? And I laughed and I laughed and I said, that's one of the mysteries of the universe. So funny. There is another one that you've heard before. Why is it that we drive our cars in a parkway, right? Central Florida Parkway but we park our cars in a driveway. What if we parked on a parkway and drove on a driveway? That would make a whole lot more sense. Why is it that in the military, privates eat in the general dining hall while the generals eat in a private dining area? Why is that? doesn't make any sense. Questions like, who let the dogs out? We've been asking this question for years. I said, where is the beef? Where did it go? Where's the beef? And how many licks does it take to get to the center of a Tootsie Roll pop? Why is it that when we watch Dora the Explorer here in the year 2017, kids have no idea what a map is. They're like, where is her GPS? Why is she still using a map when she ought to be using a navigation device? And lastly, most importantly, who is Victoria? And what is her secret? We have all of these questions that confound us from day to day. Mysteries of the universe. I was reading that and I thought that was quite funny. And I think that in our brains, in our minds, we have a lot of questions that are unanswered. Some of them will not give us much cognitive rest, even if we did find the answer. And others of them that have pretty deep significance that we find, it it behooves us to find the answer to. One of the questions, probably the most important question that we need to ask uh, is, In our minds, who is God? What do we think about God? What is his relationship to us like? In fact, John Ortberg, he's one of my favorite preachers. He says, in our mental map, in our mental map, the most important thing of all of your thoughts is your understanding of who God is. Like, who is God? What is he like? What is his character? What is his posture towards me? What is his relationship to me? What does he think about me? Who is God? Because it's easy for us to forget what the Bible says God is, who the Bible says God is. We saw last week, uh, sorry, we talked about how uh, God is our father. And I think, you know, it's not 
too, too difficult for us. In 11 o'clock on Sunday morning for us to wrap our hearts around that idea that God's a father. He's there for us. He's ready to help us. He loves us. He likes us. He loves to love us. He's proud of us. Maybe last week you felt that. You understood that. You believed that to be true. But you come here this week, a week later, and you don't really believe that to be true. It's easy for us to understand something in the moment, but very quickly those ideas seep out of our head because the promise of God, and you know a promise is only as good as the one who made that promise. The promise of God is that I will be a perfect father to you. That's God's promise to his children, to people who have put their faith in Christ. And it's easy for us to forget that. And when we do, okay, when we do forget who God is and how he th- what he thinks of me and how he relates to me, then it's going to have ripple effects in the way that we live life. So how do you see God this morning? If you see God as Father, then you won't be so anxious. We talked about this last week. You'll feel like and you'll understand and you'll know what it is that you have somebody who cares for you, who loves you, who's able to help you in your time of need. You don't act like an orphan or a slave who feels like I'm left on my own to do everything. If your view of God, okay, some of us, here's our view of God. We view God like a genie. Because that's what people say when you're growing up in church. They say, pray to God and he'll give you what you want. That's cool. So how will you relate to God? You'll pray to him when you need him. You'll talk to him when you've got things that that you've got needs for. But as soon as God doesn't pull through for you, when the rubber meets the road, you're going to stop following him. And that's how maybe some of us are. We grew up thinking about God, knowing about God. He's a genie. He should answer all of my prayers. And he didn't come through for you the way that you wanted. And so you slowly stop believing in the God of the Bible or what you think the God of the Bible is. If that's your view of God, it's going to shape the way that you live life. Some of us, instead of seeing God as a father, we see him as this senile old man in the sky. He's nice. Yeah, he's sweet, but he's not really that strong. He's not strong enough to put my person that I voted for as president into the White House. He's not that strong. He might be able to help me when I need a help on an exam. Yeah, he's a, he's a little bit smarter than I am. But when it comes to the real issues of life, God is unable to help me. And so we may have a cordial relationship with God, but a senile old man in the sky is not going to demand my soul, my life, my all. Maybe you see God as a slave driver and you see the Bible, you see Christianity. It's just a bunch of things that you need to do. And if you do, I tell you what, you're going to be very obedient to the teachings of Scripture. People are going to look at you and say, you know what, that's a very upright man or woman. But there's going to be no joy in a slavish obedience. In fact, you're going to be really mean. You're going to look down on people who don't do it as well as you do. Maybe that's why some of us are so mean. Because our view of God is that he's a slave driver, not a father who loves us, but he's a slave driver who tells us to do these impossible things and then he leaves us on to go on flat tires to go and try and get from here to there in obedience to him. Right, our view of God has profound impact on how we live life. So, two questions. What is your view of God? And if you don't know what your view, like at an honest level, not, oh, I know God is my father, he loves me, he cares for me, no, no. What, what is your, here's a better way to answer it. What does your life tell you and tell other people that you, uh, what does your life say? What is your life story telling us, telling you, telling other people about your perception of who God is? Because the way that you live life, the way that you live life is going to 
be dictated by your understanding of who God is. The most important thing in your mental map is your view of who God is. This is a question that the Apostle Paul and countless other people had to ask. What does God think of me? What does God think of me? Paul, the greatest theologian in the New Testament times, wrote 13 or 27 books of the, of the New Testament. He asked that question on many occasions, building upon his knowledge of the Old Testament scripture. Who is God? And what is his relationship to me like? What does he think about me? What is his posture? And Paul did not write <clears throat> from behind the desk in a seminary classroom apart from the life in which we live. He didn't write from some sterilized room as he thought about, looked through scripture and then, and then thought about life. He wrote it amid suffering, wrote it from a prison cell, wrote it with his body having been beaten by the sufferings of life, by, by storms, by literal storms, by shipwreck, by being beaten, by being persecuted, by having to escape through the middle of the night from people who were after his life. It's in that context that Paul thought about this, and he came to this amazing theological treatise called the Book of Romans. I'm going to read from Romans chapter 8. I'm going to look at four verses that tell us this amazing promise of God that tells us of how he relates to us, not just the fact that he's a father, but he takes that a little bit deeper to help us to understand something about the Father heart of God. Uh, Romans chapter 8, we're going to read verses uh, 35 through 39. This is the word of God, Paul the Apostle. Jailed, imprisoned, beaten, hurt, persecuted, suffering, abandoned, deserted. This is what he writes. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it's written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is God's word. This is what Paul is saying. Like, you want to know what God's stance, what God's posture, what God's attitude, what God's heart towards you is? And he's writing to a people, the Christians in Rome, okay, in Rome during the time when the emperors were not followers of Jesus, before the time when Christianity became the official religion of Rome, when Christians were this growing sect of people that the emperor and the empire wanted to kill and to destroy. He knew, he saw in his mind that a day was coming, if it had not already come at the time, when the children of believers would be dressed up like little sheep and thrown into the wild so that wild animals could eat them and kill them and take their lives. He saw a time coming when persecution was going to happen to the believers. And he's saying, this is what we are. This is what we are. We're like sheep to be slaughtered. We're just waiting for the end of our lives because the world is hostile to the life of Christ in us. He knew that persecution and hardship and famine and sword were coming to the people of God. And he says, in light of that, knowing that this is going to happen, You've got to understand that this is who you are and this is what God thinks of you. In the midst of a world that is opposed to the life of Jesus in you, this is what God thinks of you. 
And then he goes on and he tells these amazing verses of promise. Somebody said of Romans 8, man, if, if you were on a desert island and yet only one chapter of any piece of literature to take with you, Romans 8 would be the one. This is just full of promises, a treasure chest of God's, I promise you, uh, to his children. Remember, these are not for everybody, but these are for the people of God, right? For God's children who by faith in Jesus Christ have said, I'm no longer my master. I give my life to you. So what does God promise here? What does God promise in Romans 8? What does he promise to his children? Two things. The first thing is that God, he promises that his love, he will be absolutely positively committed to loving you. God promises that if you're his child, that he'll be absolutely positively committed to loving you. Verse up. 38, it says, for I am convinced. That word convinced means that he is completely 110% absolutely assured based on verifiable evidence. That's what he's saying. He's not just, hey, I'm I'm pretty sure this is the case or I'm I'm 99% sure, right? There's 1% chance, but I'm not. He's saying, no, I'm absolutely convinced. There's absolute positive certainty beyond the shadow of a doubt based upon verifiable evidence. He's saying, I'm convinced that God will be committed to loving you. What does that mean to be convinced? It means, again, there's evidence that causes us to have zero doubt. This happens several times in our home. Thankfully, it's happening less, but... There will be times where uh, our, our two little ones, younger ones, Elise and Elijah, will be playing on, on the bed in our master bedroom. And they'll be laughing and they'll be giggling. And then all of a sudden, Elijah will say, stop, Elise. And then he'll start crying and crying and crying and, and screaming and howling. And then he'll come running to where Olivia and I are. What, what happened? And he said, I got, I, got, I, uh, I got hurt. I got hurt. And we're like, where? And he's like holding his arm. Like, what happened? He says, Elise bit me. Right? Elise bit me. Like, are you sure she bit you? Yeah, she bit me. She bit me. He said, let me see. And so he re-roll up his, and sure enough, there are little teeth marks that fit the exact dental profile of Elise. So we say, Elise, did you bite Elijah? And she'll either say yes or no, depending on how she's feeling. If she feels like, uh, oh, my mom and dad will love me unconditionally, then she'll say, yes, I did. And she'll repent because kindness leads to repentance. If we look angry and we look like we're going to send her to time out, then she'll say no. But we know. Elise, tell us the truth. We know we're absolutely convinced with beyond the shadow of a doubt based on verifiable evidence that you bit your brother. That's what Paul is saying here. And I'm absolutely, utterly convinced of this. Even in the midst of all of these things that have happened in my life. And this one thing, this bedrock foundational commitment that God has committed to loving you. And unless we understand this, then life will always be dictated by our circumstances. He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. Do you believe in your heart of hearts that in your best moments that God is absolutely committed to loving you? Do you believe that? Do you believe that in your worst moments, in the hardest moments of life, that God is still absolutely and completely committed to loving you? Do you believe that? When everything is falling apart, when you feel like there's no sound of the voice of God as you pray to him, are you convinced that God loves you? 
Because this is what Paul is saying. He's saying, you've got to get this. You've got to understand this. To me, one of, the, uh, one of the, my favorite ministerial duties is uh, doing, doing weddings. I love it, love it, love it. So much about it. I think part of it is like we go through counseling and all of the baggage and all of the brokenness and all of the tears of pain and tears of forgiveness giving way on that beautiful day to just tears of joy that they saw me in all of my brokenness and yet they still loved me and are willing to give themselves to me. I love this about weddings and so much about it. I remember, and not but, but I remember, I remember, there's no but about it. I remember when Olivia and I got married. We uh, stood before just the countless witnesses who were there to hear our declaration of commitment to one another because of our commitment to God, because of he who brought us together. And I remember the vows that uh, we do at every wedding. I love these, the, these traditional vows. Will you, David, take Olivia to be your wedded wife, to have and to hold, for better or for worse, richer, poorer, in sickness and in health, till death do us part? Imagine if I was holding all his hands and I looked in her eyes and I said, maybe. <laughs> or if the opposite. Olivia, will you take this man, David, to be your wedded husband? Blah, 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 blah. And she said, I'll think about it. <laughs> How confident would the other person be in their love? And here's what God is saying. There's no maybes about it. There's no, yeah, maybe I'll think about it. Yeah, you know, yeah, she loves me because she said she'll marry me, but I don't know if it, for, for better, for worse, sick or poor, and, and until death do us part. God is saying, this is how committed I am to you. For whatever's going on in your life, I will love you through your dying day and on into eternity. But this is God's commitment. It doesn't stop when we stop breathing. It doesn't stop when our marital vows end. He is so deeply committed to loving you and me, come what may. A lot of movies have demonstrated this kind of love, but I think one of the best is Finding Nemo, that old Pixar or Disney, whatever flick it was. Uh, The beginning of the movie just builds up this relationship that before Nemo is ever born, Father Marlin is loving that little fish, like that little goofy guy and loving him and it's just building up this relationship and and Nemo comes out of that that shell and and they're swimming around and loving each other and dad loves me but this one moment of weakness Nemo goes beyond the reef that dad says don't go beyond that reef and Nemo swims to the other side and then he gets swole, uh, just swept up into this, this current. And then this team of divers catch Nemo and they take him to P. Sherman 42 Wallaby Way, Sydney, Australia. Right? And so he's gone. And the rest of the movie is about the father's heart trying to find Nemo. It's the best search and rescue movie that doesn't involve Matt Damon ever. It's an amazing movie of <laughs> him going and looking and finding him. Along the way, man, this Marlin is so committed to finding his son, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all of the ocean is able to keep him from that love, even whether it be jellyfish, ocean currents, even sharks, which are the most fearful thing in Marlin's life. Even sharks cannot stop the father 
from pursuing the son that he loved. It's just like amazing. And the part where everybody cries, maybe you cried, I didn't cry, but the part where everybody cries is at some point in the movie, Nemo finds out that his father's looking for him. And someone, I forget who it is, tells him, this is what your father is doing to find you. And in this moment of aha that changes everything for Nemo, someone says to him, your dad endured sharks for you. And then all of a sudden Nemo says, even sharks? My dad endured sharks for me? And then he says, I'm going to get back to my dad. And he jumps out of the fish tank and gets into the ocean and he finds his dad in this beautiful tear-filled reunion that left audiences speechless all over the world. But we have something far greater. If Marlon was able to face a shark to prove his love for his child, God is saying, I will stop at nothing to tell you how much, to show you how much I love you. I will stop at nothing, even at the cost of my son's life, to show you that I'm that committed to loving you, no matter what. No matter what you go through in life, no matter what you face in life, no matter what you fear in life, no matter what you've done in life, the fact remains that God is that committed to loving you. And some of us really need to get that. No amount of baggage in your life is going to keep God from loving you. No amount of failures in your life is going to keep God from loving you. No amount of of failures, no amount of secrets, the things that nobody knows about, no amount of sexual abuse or drug abuse or people abuse that you've committed is able to keep God from loving you. You get that? Nothing in all of creation can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. That the blood of Jesus is bigger than, and Jesus is bigger than your sin. That Jesus is bigger than your failure. Jesus is bigger than the secret shame that you hide, that you can't dare, for, dare to think that if somebody found this out, that God is that deeply committed to you no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter the mess in your life, no matter the mess in our nation, no matter the mess in our world, nothing will be able to separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. When I started uh, seminary in 2001, I went in just bright-eyed into seminary. I had my vision of what seminary was going to be like. I had my vision of what seminarians were like. I'd known some seminarians through the years who were called into ministry, and I thought, man, these guys were pretty much the fourth people, fourth person of the Trinity. They were so close to Jesus. But when I got into seminary, pretty soon my eyes were open to a completely different reality. These guys are deeply busted, broken, messed up, jacked up people. And maybe, this is what one of my professors says, maybe the reason why God calls us into ministry is because we're so messed up that if he didn't have us doing this for a job, we would never continue following Jesus. It was a joke, but I understand the point. People are messed up, even the ones that you think are not. And I remember going into seminary and, and my, my group of, of first-year students, I got real close with, with some of them, and we would go to chapel services. I remember one chapel service. Chapel director said, all right, we're just going to have a time to pray. You, from wherever you are, just pray whatever you want to pray, you know, to praise God. And there's this one brother, he's sitting in, in, on that side. Uh, pretty good guy. I mean, not the typical profile of a seminary student. He was very loud and he was very uh, 
you know, sometimes obnoxious, uh, sometimes volatile in his emotions. He was bipolar, right? Manic depressive was a diagnosis at the time. They used to call it manic depressive. means that your highs are very high, but your lows are just deep, deep, dark depression. Uh, he was married, had a, at least one son, I remember. And I remember that this affliction in him was so, so, so unpredictable that, I mean, his family was literally, they were falling apart. And during this time where we were asked to pray, I remember that brother stood up and he'd been crying and it just this emotional, heaving kind of breathless crying. He got up and his, his prayer took a really long time and it never really ended, but <clears throat> he said, God, Help us to believe that what you say about yourself is true. And then he just went on this, like, uh, just this, it was beautiful in a sense. It was messy in a very real sense. But he said, thank you for loving us. Help me to believe that you love me. Thank you for loving me when I was a baby. Thank you for loving me when I was a baby and I soiled my diapers. And I smelled like, and he used some colorful language. <clears throat> thank you that you loved me. My diaper exploded and I had all this stuff. And thank you. And he just went on and on and on. He said, thank you that you love me when I'm an adult. And I still crap in my diapers. Thank you that you still love me as an adult when I stink and when I smell and when I'm awful. And then his voice got louder and louder and crescendo. And he said, thank you that you love me even when I just want to throw my hands up in the air and say, bleep it. And we want to run. And he just took off running in this, this sobbing, heaping mess. And I think to this day, it was one of the most powerful and raw and real expressions of a person fighting to know, does God love me even when my life looks like this? And he took off running and, and some people went after him and they found him. He was just in a sobbing mess again, heaving up and down in a corner of the seminary classroom, weeping. And at that point, as people came around him, you better believe that's the one thing they prayed. Lord, help him to know. But in this place, in this mess, yeah, God's love has never changed. Some of us need to know that. Some of you really need to know that this morning. That when everything seems like it's falling apart in your life, that God is absolutely positively committed to loving you. Not a cleaned up version of you, but you right now, in your mess, in your diaper, in your stinkiness, he loves you in that place. But he loves you too much to know, to let you stay there because he knows that that lifestyle is killing you. But he says, come as you are. God is that committed to loving you. That's the first thing we see here. Second thing we see, that doesn't mean that there will be no hardship in life does mean that God will be committed to loving you and that nothing will separate you from his love. I don't know how it's written in there, but you get the idea. doesn't mean that life will not have hardship. It means that nothing will be able to separate you from the love of God. So he anticipates the questions Paul does that we're going to be asking. Does God love, does he still love me when my 
neck feels the chill of the blade of a sword against it. Does God still love me in that place? Does God love me when I've been sitting in this jail cell for the third day in a row, devoid of food or water? Does God still love me in that place? Anticipating these questions, he says in verse 37, in, I'm sorry, in, in, in verse uh, uh, 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship, persecution or famine or nakedness or danger? So he said, listen, these things will not separate. doesn't mean that he's going to spare you from, in fact, in these things, Many times in scripture, all, pretty much all these things, shall trouble. God's love doesn't mean that we won't face trouble. In fact, Jesus says in John 16, 33, he says, you will have trouble in this world. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't love you. Shall trouble or hardship, Hebrews 12, 7, endure hardship as discipline, as dearly loved children of God. Right? Shall uh, hardship uh, trouble, hardship, persecution. Second Timothy, he says, anyone who wants to live a godly life in Jesus Christ will face persecution. In fact, I told you these things. These things are true. You know these things are going to happen. In fact, again, he says, we are like sheep to be slaughtered, meaning we're just waiting for that persecution to come. What does that mean? What does that mean? It means that what's happening in North Korea, means that what's happening in Syria, means what's happening in the nations of the world like China, in Turkey, in the Middle East, in, in places where the church of Jesus Christ is being, is being threatened and has been for over 2,000 years, saying that is not an, uh, uh, that's not abnormal. That's not an anomaly. In fact, what's happening here in America where we face zero persecution, he's saying, this is not normal. Think, in that time, so what does that mean? Should we go and seek out persecution? No, it doesn't mean that we should. It means that God has given us to stay for a certain period of time. But, man, I remember very, very clearly, during the time when Tim Tebow was very outspoken about his faith and when uh, the first NBA player started talking about being, uh, coming out of the closet and saying, I'm, I'm homosexual, and Jason Collins was being praised. Speak up, son! That's what everybody was saying. Tim Tebow said, I did this all because of Jesus. They said, shut up, son, sit down. Very clearly. Tolerance. Okay, you've got to embrace the viewpoints of everybody. And very clearly, we begin to realize that every viewpoint is accepted unless you follow Jesus. But here what's happening is what Jesus said was going to happen. It's what Paul said was going to happen. what everybody in the Bible said was going to happen. And what's happening throughout the world. In this moment where we're not facing persecution then, it should give us an even greater solidarity to love and pray for our brothers and sisters who are knowing that this is not far away from our lives also. But when that, so that's why I pray. Every night I pray for my kids. Lord, give them courage to stand for their convictions because they are your minority. They're not in the majority. They're not. We're not. Our kids will not be. Not in America, at least. But he's saying, in this place, does the persecution that comes mean that God doesn't love you? And absolutely not. Absolutely not. And he goes on and he lists 10 things. For I am convinced that none of these 10 things will be able to separate us from the love. I'm not going to go through all of them. But look at how he starts. I'm convinced that neither death. The first thing in his list of 10, right, 
the, the first group of, uh, in verse 35 was seven things, and then starting here, ten things, right? Two perfect numbers in Scripture. And then nothing is going to be able to separate us. No matter what the world throws at us, nothing will separate us. But he, he, he takes this first one, death, and he puts this first in this list of ten because he wants to deal a death blow to the jugular vein of any argument that we bring up that says, here, here are some things that's going to keep us from the love of God. Why does he say death? Because death separates us from everything that we know in this life. It is the great separator. It's why we get so broken and sad and grieve and mourn, even though we have the hope of heaven. That's why we do, because death separates the one who has gone before us from those who are left behind. If I die, I'm leaving everyone behind. I'm leaving my job behind. I'm leaving my possessions behind. I'm leaving my money behind. Everything is going to be separated by death with me, from me, and, and everything else in this life. He's saying the one thing that death will not separate us from is the love of God. You know, it's interesting. Um, you go to funerals. I remember, uh, boy, five years ago, there was a funeral out in uh, Seminole County. 22-year-old, young Korean, young man was, was killed in East or Orlando. It was a drug deal that had gone bad. He got shot several times in his head. That young man had been to our church on many occasions. In fact, been to at least one retreat with us friends with some of our people. But as far as fruit and evidence show, uh, we don't know that there was any evidence that he put his trust in Christ. Some of our folks went to that funeral service and afterwards, they, they, I mean, they were, they were crying over the funeral because they said there was no hope. There was no hope. They just told stories funny stories. They tried to make each other laugh, but at the end of the day, they all went home in a pool of tears because there was no hope for them because death was the great separator and everything that that young man knew in life was forever separated and dislodged from his life. They say, this promise is different for the child of God. This promise is different for the child of God. Yeah, we mourn. Yeah, we grieve. And every funeral I've been to, there's not been a time where I haven't cried. Why? Because I'm separated from the person that we're talking about here. But for them, they're not separated from the love of God. If they're a child of God, the next thing that they know, I think about this, I think about this a lot. I think about the thief who died on the cross next to Jesus, terrorist, committed all of these criminal and awful acts against the people. But in that last moment, he put his trust in the love of God that was pursuing him even in that moment where he was being killed for the crimes that he had committed. Nothing good about this man, yet God's love was absolutely committed to seeking and saving the lost, which he did to that man on the cross. And when he put his trust in Jesus, the promise of Christ was, today you will be with me in paradise. Today, the next thing you know, when you, when, when you breathe your last, when this pain is done, the next thing is you will be in the presence of the one who loves you with an everlasting love. That's crazy stuff. I think about this. Imagine if your bro- he's your brother, he's your son. He's your cousin. He's your friend. 
and you see him dying up there, you are grieving an eternal kind of mourning because you had no idea, because you know that you're never going to see him again if you didn't know Jesus. And so there's a weeping and there's a mourning and there's a, a crying without hope. And yet for him, death could not separate him from the love of God that was shown at the cross in Christ Jesus so that the next moment of his life, the love of God fully embracing him in a way that he's never known before. See, this is the same with all who put their faith in Jesus as well. If you don't know Jesus, this promise is not for you. And this is a sad reality. When I tell Manny about, she says, people, she came home a couple weeks ago from school and she said, dad, people who don't know Jesus don't go to heaven. I said, that's right. And she said, then why don't we pray every day, every moment for people who don't know Jesus so that they could get into heaven? I said, because I'm a jerk and my heart is hard and sometimes I don't care. I didn't say that. I said, Manny, we do pray. You may not hear it all the time, but daddy prays for people who don't know Jesus. But yeah, there's a sense of urgency when we understand this to be true. But Paul is saying death cannot separate a child of God from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. He says you've got to understand and believe. And then he goes on in this list of 10 things. And then he says at the end of it, just in case he missed something, he says, neither uh, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God uh, that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing, nothing that you go through, nothing that you face, no current event, no future event, nothing that happens, wherever you go, you will not be separated from the love of God in Christ Jesus. He says the most important thing in your mental map is how you understand God to see you. Because if you can lay this foundation that God is absolutely positively committed to loving me, then everything that happens is filtered through hands, which we may not always understand, but that are pierced with love and affection, and that every intention of God's heart for his children is for our good. Do you see this? And do you believe this? And do you understand this? Because if you do, this will be the bedrock of your life, the foundation of your life. Paul says, I'm convinced of this. How could he be so convinced? How could he be so convinced in the face of evidence that seems to prove contrary? Constantly thrown in jail, constantly being mocked, constantly being ridiculed, even the people of God abandoning him. And how could he be so convinced? He would later write in 2 Corinthians 1.20 that all God's promises are yes and amen in Christ. Listen, if Nemo could say, my father did that for me, then we have something so much greater. We look to the cross. Look to the cross and we see God, my father, would do that for me? Love. So amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. The Bible never just talks about God loves you and he says it and he wrote it in a book. But the constant teaching of scripture, 
is God shows, God does, God acts, God moves. For God so loved the world that he gave. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and gave his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. He says, all we need to do when we doubt and question in our darkest moments and in our highest moments is we look to the cross and we see that this is God's demonstration screaming out loud that I will forever be committed to loving you, that the infinite became an infant in order that he might die to prove the undying love of God for you and for me. That the child of God became a child of people so that children of people could become children of God. The grace and the love that will not let go of us. So what happens when we really understand this? When you really understand this love, I promise you, it changes everything. We don't live with fear. We don't live with worry. We don't live with anxiety. We live with a confidence, with a joy, with a passion that even though it seems like life is handing us a raw deal, we still move to God in prayer, in trust, in worship. We cling to him in the darkness because what he's shown us in the light to be true is really true. And we hold on to that. Our life begins to change. And as a result, our worship in the darkness becomes a witness to the world around us. And that's how so many of us who've been following the beautiful story of Ava brightly have been so encouraged and so strengthened and so encouraged and so renewed. Last week I was watching memorial service and it was one of the most beautiful declarations of faith and hope and worship in God. And as I was preparing this message, I wanted to share uh, something. I, I, there's a, a blogger, pastor in Seattle, Eugene Cho, and he's just talking about how he's hearing from people who are unchurched, don't, don't believe in Jesus. They're telling him that because of Ava, they're coming to put their trust in Jesus. And so early in the week, as I was thinking about this message, uh, I wanted to share these words uh, from, uh, from Ava during her baptism. Um, and I, you know, I, I wanted to be sure that it was okay. And so I asked Olivia to ask uh, Esther if it was okay. And she, you know, whatever for the, you know, Ava's life could be used for the glory of God. Um, we're thankful, uh, thankful. Uh, Mike and Esther are here with, with Gwen. Um, I'm going to read what, what Ava shared during her baptism when she was seven years old, that she's going through cancer, in and out of hospital rooms, needles, and all of these things. Um, this is what she shared, and this is what it looks like when we know that God loves us and that he's committed to loving us no matter what. Thank you so much for coming to celebrate my faith in the Lord. I have faced many challenges during these few years of my life. I would always call for help to my mama and my daddy, hoping they would always be by my side and help me through any pain, just like they promised. Sometimes I was still scared. The scariest times happened when I saw that my mama and daddy could not solve every problem that I had. That's when I learned that when they face challenges, they also call to someone. They call to Jesus. If my mama and daddy need Jesus, then a little person like me needs him too. I soon learned that he is more than someone who just helps us when we call for help. For example, sometimes I feel 
like he puts his hand on my shoulder, not to do anything special, but to say that he is always there with us, no matter what we're going through, no matter how we feel. I normally don't get to tell others what keeps me going from day to day or why I can be thankful and happy. So I am being baptized today because I want you to know that it's all because of Jesus. He died on the cross for our sins and rose to life. And now we can be with him forever, no matter what happens in this life. We will live forever with each other and with him. The whole world is in his care. We can trust that even if things don't go the way we want, he has a better plan. Thank you so much. And may God bless you all. This is what it looks like when we know in our hearts that God loves us and that he's absolutely positively committed to our good. And when Ava breathed her last breath in this life, the promise of God, that that next moment she was in the presence of the one who had loved her in life, who loved her through the valley of the shadow of death and who will love her on into eternity. The glorious hope that we have as children of God. Let's pray. Brothers and sisters, our desire to love God, the greatest commandment that God has given to us, the desire to love others, just like that first one, in fact, you can't separate one from the other, but our failure to love is not a failure in being a loving person. It all begins with us knowing that God loves us, that he is absolutely positively 100 and a billion percent convinced that God loves you and me and that nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Can we pray? Maybe your prayer this morning, just Lord, I want to know that love. Lord, I want to know that love. I want to know that love and have that same conviction that saints through the ages Saints like Ava, saints like Paul, clung to the joyful moments and in the painful moments. Lord, I want to know this love. Love me. Help me to understand that. Let's just receive that love. Maybe you just want to be still, silent before the Lord. and You just want to lift your hands and say, Father, love me. Show me your love. Pour your love into my heart. I just want to be loved. I just want to know your love. And invariably, when God wants to show you his love, he will take you to the cross. There to do our calculations. Why should I gain? Why should I profit when he's the one crucified? No other other answer, but my only boast is Christ. He's my only boast. Nothing will be able to separate me from the love of God. Let's pray for a minute or so, and then I'll pray for us. Lord, help me to love. Pray for each other. Pray for the people around you. Lord, help us to love. Help us to know your love. Help us to know your love that will not let us go. Lord, help us to know. Let's pray that for a couple moments, and then I'll pray for us.
Father in heaven, we thank you. Thank you so much that you have loved us with an everlasting love. As Ephesians says, before we were ever born, you loved us from before the foundation of the world. That we were born into this world already loved by you. From eternity past, before our lives began on earth, we were loved. In this life, we will be loved. And after our life on this earth is done, we will continue to be loved into eternity future. Father, we pray that you would make that personal to us now. Make that real to us now. Make it tangible to us now. Not a vapor, an emotion, a wish, but a certainty grounded in the cross of Christ. That my Father would do that for me. May we never lose the wonder of your love. Thank you for loving us. Help us now to love you in return. In Jesus' name we pray.